her troubled soul. Master of the sea, yet he cares for you and me. I've never been the same since I met him. My life's never been the same since I met Jesus. He alone can calm the troubled soul. Master of the sea, yet he cares for you and me. I've never been the same since I met him. My life's never been the same since I met Jesus. Oh, bless the Lord, long can calm the troubled soul. Master of the sea, yet he cares for you and me. I've never been the same since I met him. My life's never been the same since I met Jesus. Oh, he alone can calm the troubled soul. Oh, bless the Lord. Master of the sea, yet he cares for you and me. I've never been the same since I met him. Never been the same since I met Jesus. Oh, he Troubled soul. Oh, Master of the sea, yet he cares for you and me. I've never been the same since I met him. I've had 
Father, tonight we give you thanks that we can come before your presence. And Lord, you can touch our eyes, not only our literal eyes, but you can touch the eyes of our understanding. You can touch our hearts, Father, that we might perceive what is your will and what is your plan that lies ahead of us. Tonight we ask, Lord, that in this short service that you'll be a blessing to everyone that's joining us. I thank you for each child that, of yours that came out to service tonight. And we pray that you'll fill their hearts with an abundance of richness, Lord, that can enrich their lives as they leave this place tonight. Father, strengthen the faith of everyone joining us tonight. Strengthen their confidence, we pray, Father. Comfort their souls, we ask, Father. And heal their minds, their spirits, and their bodies if it is necessary. Father, we ask your blessing on this service. Bless your word tonight. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen and amen. Well, it's good to see some faces out tonight. We are slowly getting back to... The place where we can talk to people rather than speak to the pews. I've learned to speak to the pews, empty pews, and an iPad. Never thought the day would ever come when this would happen, but things do happen. And uh, we're glad that God helped us through this uh, period of time that we have gone through the pandemic. Uh, tomorrow, God willing, we would be able to see Brother John. I give him permission to come out and visit us tomorrow. And if the Lord permits, we'll ask him to say a few things to us. I would tell him, be short. You see, while he's sick, I can control him. I can say, Brother John, be short. Don't strain yourself. Take your time and speak. But he has gone through a traumatic experience. 
God never errs in judgment. And whether you have a problem in your body or you're healthy, everything is given to us with a purpose that will end up and ultimately bring glory to God. Tonight I want to take us on a different trip. And when I say a different trip, it would indeed be a trip because I have opened before me the book of Revelation. And the book of Revelation, uh, the apocalypse, the open manifestation of, uh, the King James translators title this book, The Revelation of Saint John the Divine. Now, if John the Apostle knew they called him Saint John the Divine, he'll really not be pleased with this title because the uh, men that translated uh, the Bible into English, the King James Version, uh, was done by men uh, under the administration of King James, who was a Scottish king that became king of England. And uh, so his background was the Church of Scotland. And when he came on into England, a, a country that was ruled by his cousin, Elizabeth, who had passed away, uh, it, the Church of England comprised of Puritans, who were like Presbyterians, sort of, and the, the uh, Catholics. So there was a mixture of, of the theology and interpretation of translation. As a matter of fact, they had two translations that they used in one church. Now, I wasn't there, but I'm just quoting history. And from what I've learned in history, they had two translations in the Church of England. And so when King James from the Church of Scotland came and became king in England, he had to cope with two translations. The bishops had the Bishop's Bible, and the Puritans had the Geneva Bible. And so they were there, and there were discrepancies, even though we're preaching from one Bible. So by now you should realize the King James translation was not the original translation. It was another translation put together. And so because of discrepancies between the Bishop's Bible and the, uh, the Geneva Bible, uh, both parties had a conflict and the bishops felt they had a superior authority uh, in that church. King James, who was very adamant in his own ways, decided, okay, uh, we will have a new translation where you'll bring the Geneva, uh, by the bishop's Bible and the Geneva Bible, they'll bring both together and see how we can harmonize them. So if one translation already had mistranslations and the other one had mistranslations, bringing two mistranslations together would not make it a perfect translation, would it? Bringing two imperfect people together in harmony would not make that a perfect man, would it? As a matter of fact, uh, if more than one person has the same kind of sickness, it can become an epidemic and then eventually become a pandemic. Uh, You understand what I'm saying? And so the King James translation, which I use, uh, is not the, it's the best for me because we were brought up on the King James translation. 
in so much that sometimes we pray King James uh, when we pray, Father, thou art wonderful. Why am I using King James vocabulary? Well, it has become such a part of us that we make songs. Thou art worthy, thou art worthy. You know, we make songs and we make prayers and we incorporate those because we, are, we have lost our ability to maintain our integrity and our language because we are so interwoven in translations. I said all of that to say this, and tonight we will not be able to study the book of Revelation. Uh, the book of Revelation is a massive book. And I'm really wanting to get to the point where we can talk about the bride of Christ. And when I say bride of Christ, I'm thinking when I was a young man growing up, we had a movie called Brides of Dracula. And so, how you think of brides of Dracula, bride of Christ, if you're not sure, you're not sure if Jesus will have a wife. And so, it's, it's something that we have to uh, consider. When we're thinking of the book of Revelation, we're thinking, thinking of a book that is made up of a multitude of symbols and symbolisms. And so... Uh, for us to touch a little bit on that here tonight, in chapter 1, I'm looking at this book, and uh, I'm understanding that I'm looking at it, and I think verse 1, verse 2, and verse 3 are not exactly a part of the book. I think that these verses, verse 1, verse 2, and verse 3, are not really a part of this book because it introduces the book and um, let's see here, I'm having a problem with my watch, so I'll just take it off and uh, leave it over here. Don't worry, I'll still keep on my eye on the time. And so it says here in verse 3, Blessed is he, or she that is, that read it, and they that hear the words of this prophecy. So the book is called a book of prophecy. And keep or guard, keep or guard those things which are written therein, for the time is at hand. It means we are living close to the end of the age. Now, whoever introduced this, uh, it's, um, it's a wonderful introduction, I think. And John, then John went on, and he is writing here. Uh, it says, John to the seven churches which are in Asia Minor. John to the seven churches which are in Asia Minor. Now, as you go through this here, uh, you will find there are different symbols. Tonight, I wouldn't touch all the symbols, just a few. In verse 12 of chapter 1, it says, And I turned to see the voice of him that spake unto me, and being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. Now, when John saw seven golden candlesticks, he saw literal seven golden candlesticks in a vision. Remember, these are all visions John is seeing. Here are a few things that we need to consider as we look at some of these areas of the Word of God and the book of Revelation. John's vocabulary uh, was limited to that time frame that he was living in. So if John saw a helicopter... He would not call it a helicopter because that word was not even invented 
and the helicopter was not even invented. But if he had a vision of the future and saw a helicopter, he might call it a flying locust made of iron. If he saw an airplane, he might look up there and say, hey, they've got iron birds flying overhead and they make a lot of noise like thunder. So John's vocabulary was limited to the vocabulary existing in his time frame. And if he was seeing visions of the future, he could not adequately explain what he was seeing. So you and I, we would have to wonder, now what was he seeing? Well, you don't have to wonder too much. Because God is wise in his own ways. I hold my finger in Revelation uh, chapter 1. And a scripture that's coming to my mind is in Ecclesiastes, uh, the writings of Solomon. In Ecclesiastes chapter uh, 12, I think it is. In Ecclesiastes, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. In Ecclesiastes chapter 12, Solomon in his wisdom writes this. And he says here, uh, he says here in verse 8. Vanity of vanities, saith the preacher. All is vanity. That is a strong statement. And then he said in verse 9, And moreover, because the preacher was wise. Now, preachers today are a dime a dozen. I'm included. Preachers today are a dime a dozen. But not everyone that preaches is called of God. Uh, There is one proper truth. And Jesus made a statement, he says, and you shall know the truth, and the truth will set you free. A misinterpretation of what the scripture is saying is not truth, but error. And it is important that we understand that. A misinterpretation of scripture is error, and that will not set you free. So if a preacher, or if I get up here, and I'm misinterpreting scripture, then you listening to me, you don't have the possibility of being saved under my ministry if I am misinterpreting scripture. As a matter of fact, Paul mentioned this in 2 Timothy and chapter 2. He says, he says, uh, Hymenaeus, he says, shun, shun profane and vain babblings. He says, shun profane And vain babblings, that's talking about preachers, uh, for they will increase unto more ungodliness. Now the word ungodly does not mean you're drinking booze and cussing. Ungodly means anything that God has not approved or ordained to be godly. You could be going to church and you're ungodly. Uh, Jude writes about ungodly sinners ungodly individuals that kept crept on into the church, uh, that they were in the church, creeping in, being a part of the church, but they were ungodly. And so we keep that in mind. And so uh, their word, Paul says, will eat as does a can- canker, of whom is Hymenaeus and Philetus, who concerning the truth have erred, teaching that the resurrection is past. These two men that were preaching in Paul's day taught that the resurrection was past. As far as Paul was concerned, they were in error. And because they were, he went on to say, and their word, their message, their preaching, 
their sermons will eat your spiritual life as does a canker. Like a caterpillar. You ever saw a caterpillar coming out there and start to eat? There was a part of, of Ontario here that was infested with, uh, with a kind of um, a Japanese beetle or something like that. That overnight it can finish off the crop. And farmers were getting concerned. Uh, there were particular uh, insects that were infecting uh, society. Well, a preacher could stand up there, and if he preaches false doctrine, his word will eat your spiritual life and sap the life out of you as that a caterpillar or a canker worm. And they have overthrown the faith of some. So if you sit down there in a jolly good old nice church, and the preacher is preaching a nice old jolly good old message to tickle your ears and to make you happy... Uh, he might be destroying your soul and poor you naive to reality could be caught in that snare and be destroyed. It is important how you give it what you pay attention to when you go to church. The truth will set you free. False doctrine will hold you in bondage and you would never be free. All right. And so here in Ecclesiastes, the 12th chapter, Paul is writing, uh, Solomon is writing here. He says in verse 9, And moreover, because the preacher was wise, not a silly, not an uncalled preacher, not an undisciplined preacher, but the preacher was wise. Uh, this wisdom is wisdom from God. What he did, he still taught the people perfect knowledge, that is, knowledge of God. Yea, he gave good heed, and he sought out and set in order proverbs, many proverbs, that is, hard sayings, uh, parables, uh, symbolisms, like we will be talking about here tonight. Symbolic language of Scripture, or parabolic language of Scripture, that's not meant for everybody to understand. But only the men called of God will be able to interpret that with the proper interpretation thereof. All right? And say so he says, um, and, and uh, verse uh, 10, the preacher sought out. It is important that this preacher called of God searches out. He sought out to find out acceptable words. I'm speaking to you in your vernacular. I'm speaking in English language, and we all hear, except Brother Thomas at the back, and Brother Ron and Sister Joyce, uh, we all are subject to English. We don't know anything else uh, but English, right? So those of us that are just subject to English, you don't want me talking French, uh, because you wouldn't understand a thing. I'm trying my best to use acceptable words that with your comprehension, you'll be able to perceive what I'm saying, all right? And so acceptable words are used by this preachers and a preacher, and that which was written was upright, even words of truth. The words of the wise preacher, the words of the wise, are as goads and nails fastened by the master of assemblies. In other words, for someone to nail you down in the church and nail your faith and strengthen your faith, their words must be acceptable and wise words. Uh, the preacher's word is to be wise. And it would be able to settle you down in the faith. And to put some stability in your life. 
If you're going to church listening to a lot of messages and taking a lot of notes and memorizing a lot of scripture, but it is not adding stability to your life, then you're wasting your time uh, going to church because you're going in futility. In vain do they worship me teaching for doctrines, Jesus said, the commandments of men. So doctrinal interpretation is important. Correct doctrinal interpretation is important for one's success. So back here in the book of Revelation, as we look at this book, a little bit we can touch on uh, here tonight. Uh, In verse 12, it tells us seven golden candlesticks. So John is having a vision now. He's not there literally, but he's caught up in the spirit. And he is having a vision. He sees seven golden candlesticks. Well, what does that mean? Uh, it was not a one bunch of candlesticks on one little candelabra. You know, sometimes we do that. We have a little candelabra. It's, I have one of that in my study at home. I don't know. Somebody want to buy it, they can get it. I'll give you half price. It's um, seven candlesticks on one candelabra. Now, the Jews do that. They have one like that. But John was not seeing a candelabra with seven candlesticks. He was sawing seven individual candlesticks. How do you know? Well, let's read. It says, And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man. Here were seven candlesticks. And Jesus was walking in the midst of the candlesticks. So it's not a candelabra. Uh, he was walking in seven, amidst seven golden candlesticks. Uh, so he was in the midst of that. He was clothed with a, a garment down to the foot. And girt about the paps with a golden girdle. On his hair and his head and his hairs were white like wool. As white as snow, etc., etc., etc. Now these seven candlesticks... Uh, were what he saw. Remember, we're dealing with symbols. And then in verse 16, he had this Jesus that was walking amidst the seven golden candlesticks. He had in his right hand seven stars. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. That is a sight. You see someone walking in the middle of seven candlesticks. And he had seven stars in his right hand and his tongue stretched out like a two-edged sword. I would run if I see something like that in the middle of the night. The Lord has to explain, I'm Jesus, don't run. (laughs) You understand what I'm saying? But John is having a vision, so he didn't have to run. He saw this and it says here, like a two-edged sword and his countenance, this Jesus, this being he saw... His, his appearance and his countenance was like the sun, midday sun, when the sun shineth in all its strength. So John fell down at his feet as though he was dead. He got knocked down. Someone said he got slain. Well, maybe he did. But when he got slain and he came up, he was not just burping and uh, mumbling uh, silly words. When he got up from this vision, he had a book of revelation to present to the people. When you have a vision and you get slain, you come up. It's not to remember what you had last night to eat. Uh, You'll remember, you'll be having a knowledge and interpretation and a vision and guidance for God's people. And so when John fell down, well, here are seven golden candlesticks and seven stars. Verse 20. And the mystery of the seven stars, so we'll have 
this is so good sometimes we have an interpretation of what these are. Right? When we have an interpretation, praise God, we can understand. It says, The mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand, and the seven golden candlesticks. The seven stars are symbolic, that is, to the angels of the seven churches. The word angel is translated messenger. The messenger to the seven churches, uh, which are in Asia Minor. Seven churches were present right there in Asia Minor. These seven churches are mentioned here in verse, uh, verse 11. When this Lord is speaking, he says, I'm Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. What thou seest, John, write, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia Minor, unto Ephesus, and unto Smyrna, and unto Pergamos, and unto Tyatira, and unto Sardis, and unto Philadelphia, and unto Laodicea. He says, these are the seven churches which are in Asia Minor. Some preachers would like to take that and stretch it and make it uh, seven church ages. And really and truly, when you really think about it, uh, the church of Laodicea, which is lukewarm in the book of Revelation, is just like our church. But then we are so resembling so many other churches, uh, like Sardis, we are sometimes dead and don't even know it, think we are alive. Uh, there are so many things. But the seven churches which were in Asia were symbolized in seven candlesticks. Jesus walking in the midst of the seven candlesticks is like a candlestick inspector. He inspects each one of these churches. And while he's doing that, he has a message now to send to the seven churches. I wish the Lord would come in and inspect our church. Well, we have to get everybody out, you know. We'll have to see how best we can send a letter out to everybody and say, Jesus is coming uh, this coming Sunday. Can you all please put aside your busy schedule and find no excuse and come to church so Jesus can examine us? He won't do that. He will come and examine us. As a matter of fact, he might be walking in the church tonight and find out that those who claim to love him are not here tonight. What can you say? And if he does that, and I believe he does that, why should I be disappointed? Uh, I, I'm hoping he's not disappointed. Lord, I want to give you the best. I hope you're not disappointed in the lack of commitment and dedication that exists in our day. So the seven churches, the seven candlesticks are like the seven churches. And the seven stars are the minister of the ministers or messengers of the seven churches. Are the angels of the seven churches. And so when the Lord is writing here from chapter 2 and chapter 3. He's sending these letters to the seven churches which are in Asia. And he's sending it to the minister. Uh, that is very important for you to understand. Because God wouldn't send a letter to every member in the church. He'll send a letter to the minister of that church. A minister is important. Uh, you cannot bypass a minister and expect the Lord to be dealing with you on a one-to-one -one basis. It's contrary to Scripture. If God has called a minister, it is contrary to Scripture if you're running to other source. When he ascended on high, Paul says, he gave gifts unto men. And to some he gave apostles, and to some he gave prophets, and to some he gave pastors and teachers, and evangelists. Uh, he has listed like a five-fold ministry there. 
and that is given for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, uh, for the, until the saints can come to a full maturity in Christ, for the perfecting of the saints. Uh, the ministry is given by God to the church. You cannot ignore the ministry. Uh, the minister, Paul says, I stand as an ambassador who in Christ said beseech you. And so, understand all of this, and so we move on here. I don't know how far we'll get to tonight. But in chapter 2, um, it's one of the important things that he lists here. In chapter 2, I want you to look with me, and a few verses here. Uh, so Jesus is walking in the middle of seven golden candlesticks, which are the seven churches. He is the candlestick inspector, because... Whatever faults he's finding in these churches and whatever good is existing in these churches, he's going to write a letter and send it to the minister and says, you need to get these things together. Get your act together. And so the first church was Ephesus. And then we have Smyrna, Ephesus in chapter 2, verse 1, Smyrna in verse 8, Philip uh, Pergamos in verse 12, chapter 2, um, Tyra, Tyra in verse 18, same chapter 2. Uh, chapter 3, verse 1, Sardis was another church here. In verse 7 is Philadelphia, that's number 6. And in verse uh, 14, uh, chapter, uh, chapter 3, verse 14, Laodicea, which is the seven churches. Now, one of the things I want you to note here is that in chapter 2, something exists here. In all the churches. And we're dealing with symbolisms, right? Here it says here in chapter 2 and verse 9. The second church he's writing unto is called the church of Smyrna. And in verse 9, the last part of that verse says, I know the blasphemy of them which say they're Jews and are not, but they're of the synagogue of Satan. Right there in a good church... A powerful little assembly that God find no flaws with was the synagogue of Satan. In the church, right smack dab in the middle, while God was preaching a good word, there was an element operating there that belonged to the devil. I got to give the devil credit. He never limits his activity. You can be an ordinary beggar, he'll tempt you. You can be someone that's wealthy in society, he'll tempt you. You can be the prince ruling in a kingdom, he'll tempt you. You can be a child of God that just accept Jesus, he'll tempt you. Or you can be even Jesus himself, and he'll give it a shot to tempt you. You could be Eve, the mother of all living, and he's going to come there to see how he can twist your mind from the reality of what God wants. That's his job. His job is to tempt us. Our job is to stand on the promises of God and resist his temptation and defeat him by living godly. You can't live him godly. You can't overcome the devil by making your face funny and say, Satan, I rebuke you. It's like me going to a ring, learning to uh, box when I was small. You know, I'm never into sports, never into sports. But when we were small, remember... Uh, two boxers I remember. One was Joe Fraser and one was Cassius Clay. You remember those, Brother Ron, Brother Sam? You remember those? 
Joe Fraser and Cassius Clay. Cassius Clay became Mohammedan, so he can probably win more fights. But um, <laughs> that made a difference. So Cassius Clay became Muhammad Ali. And Joe Fraser, he had a deadly punch. That's what I remember. Can you imagine the two men standing in one ring? And Cassius Clay go like this. And he says, Joe, I punch you. I punch you. I punch you. And Fraser turns around and says, I undercut you. I give you an undercut. Uppercut, undercut. Block out. It's not going to accomplish anything. Saying, Satan, I rebuke you ain't amount to anything. Resist the devil is when he tempts you, live for God and defeat him. When he says, don't pray, pray. When he says, don't go to church, go to church. When he says, cuss, don't cuss. When he says, steal, don't steal. When he says, lust, don't lust. Live for God. Walk in the spirit and you will not fulfill the works of the flesh or the lust of the flesh. And so... Uh, this battle that is engaged, we are engaged in, is a spiritual warfare. But right here in the church of Smyrna was the seat of Satan. Can you believe that? I wonder if he's got how many seats he's got in our church. Because he's always have an element that don't believe what the pastor says. And if the pastor is strong, Satan can't do anything in that church. If God has called that man, the devil would try to do something and the dust will fly and the smoke will sh fly and everything will happen. And when it's all done, the pastor stays and the elect stays and the non-elect backslides and leave the church. That is why it is important to have a God-ordained ministry in every church. And Paul, uh, uh, John is writing here. So in verse 9, chapter 1, he says, the synagogue of Satan. Verse 13 in the church at Pergamos, write, I know thy works, verse 13, and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is. Now, one, he calls yet a synagogue of Satan in Smyrna. In Pergamos, he had a seat in a little corner. And when this candlestick inspector went around and checked all these churches, Jesus found the seat of Satan in Pergamos. Synagogue of Satan in Smyrna, seat of Satan in Pergamos. And then in chapter, uh, same, same verse, he says, Where Antipas, uh, my faithful martyr, who was slain among you, where Satan dwelleth. Where was Satan dwelling? In Pergamos. These were churches that were powerful New Testament churches. The body of Christ. In Smyrna, had a seat, the synagogue of Satan working in their midst. But there were electoren of God that never submitted themselves to the seat, to the synagogue of Satan. In Pergamos, the body of Christ had the seat of Satan there, but there were children of God in that body church that never submitted to the seat of Satan. When we think we are infallible, and we're impervious, and Satan cannot undermine us. Hindsight is always 20-20 vision. We look back at the past and see what the devil did to every church that God started, and not be naive to that fact. And the reality of that, that we are no 
not powerful enough to defeat the devil. We need God to help us. In chapter 3, uh, further on, in chapter 3, it says here in verse 24, uh, to the church of Tyre, in verse 24, but unto you I say, and unto the rest in Tyre, Tyre as many uh, that has, uh, that uh, as many as have not this false doctrine, that's the doctrine of uh, that Jezebel was promoting, spiritual fornication, and which have not known the depths of Satan. Satan had depths. So I want to be, when we were small, we sang a song. Deeper, deeper in the love of Jesus, daily let me go. And you know, <clears throat> people sing that song. And I was uh, from a particular church that sang that song. We loved that song, deeper, deeper. And when I went back and tried to give them messages that will help them deeper, they prefer shallow, shallow in the seat of Satan. People only sing songs without any desire to fulfill it in the word of God in their lives. And so time is running out on me here. The depths of Satan was in, in, in Tyra. Then in chapter 7, it talks about the church at Sardis. And uh, there's so much to talk about each one of these churches. I'm not going to pick on all of that. But verse 9, it tells us here again. It says, Behold, I make them of the synagogue of Satan. This is the church at Philadelphia. And Philadelphia also had the synagogue of Satan. Now, who is writing to these churches? Who is writing to these seven churches? It is Jesus, the candlestick inspector. That one which walked among the seven golden candlesticks. And he is writing now to the seven stars he had in his right hand. See, if the Lord has a minister in his right hand and you try to abandon him, you're abandoning a minister that God has. If he has the stars in his right hand and you're trying to fight that minister, you'll go under. If that man is called of God, don't fight. If you don't believe, run. Just backslide and get, get on your way. But don't stand against any man that's anointed to preach the gospel. And so... It says here uh, that uh, make them of the synagogue of Satan. Verse 9, which say they're Jews and are not and do lie. Uh, they say they are children of God, but they're lying. Uh, they say I'm a, I'm a part of the body of Christ, but they're lying because it's not really the part of the body of Christ. Every one of these body assemblies in Asia Minor had problems. Only two were not really rebuked seriously by the Lord. But here is something that we need to move off now from Satan. We've got 10 minutes on our night here tonight. Uh, but uh, <clears throat> when we move off from the synagogue of Satan, and we'll catch this some other time, we'll catch this service some other time, maybe tomorrow uh, a little bit. I'm not sure, but um, it says here, Him that overcometh, verse 12. Now this is a beautiful verse of scripture. We are dealing with symbolisms here, right? Symbolisms. Him that overcometh. If you're an overcomer, God will make you a post. Why am I living for God? Because I'll become a post. Is that a good promise? Isn't that what it says? You'll become a pillar in the temple. Can you imagine God is building a temple and Brother Joe is one pillar? Right up in front there, he makes him a pillar. What's that pillar, Brother Joe? What's this pillar, Brother Sam? Is that what God is in? No, we're talking about symbolisms. 
We're talking about things that has a deeper interpretation than what you're reading. A pillar, it means that in the coming kingdom, you'll be one of those that carry the weight and responsibilities of the work of God on your shoulders. And it says, I'll make him a pillar in the temple of my God. So if the pillar is not a literal pillar, the temple is not a literal temple. And I'm going to leave you tonight with some thoughts that we'll pick up some other time. He says, the pillar is not a literal pillar. The temple of my God, which is not a literal temple, but it's that place where God dwells by his spirit. God is a spirit. He does not dwell in temples made with hands. We are the temples of the living God. And where the presence of God is, uh, there is always that liberty and freedom. It says, uh, in the temple of my God, and he shall go no more out. And I will write, I will write upon him, Jesus is speaking, the name of my God. Now, one of these days, I promise you so many messages. One of these days, I will address the Godhead. And I'll address it very uh, wisely. In other words, I'll tell you all the concepts there are about the Godhead. And I'll let you choose which one you want to follow. I'll tell you about oneness. I'll tell you about people that teach two in the Godhead. And I'll tell you about some that teach three in the Godhead. And I'll give you scriptures on all three. Uh, one, two, three. And I'll let you think about which one you need to follow. I will use all the wisdom I have to influence you uh, to believe what I believe. And I won't tell you tonight what I believe. But I'm going to give you all these scriptures and then you'll see what the Bible really teaches. And stop following some book somewhere that is not supported by scripture. If you go to Bible school that's teaching anything contrary to what God is teaching, it needs to be shut down. It's a dangerous place to go. Amen. You go to a Christian bookstore that has no end of philosophy and doctrines contradicting each other and whatever. It's a dangerous place to go. If the Lord gives me 10 cities that I have to rule and I'll shut every Bible school down immediately. As fast as I close pubs and I close churches down, I'll shut every Bible school down and seminary. There's nothing to boast about. There's nothing to boast about if you got a degree from a seminary. You might as well get one from a cemetery. Paul says, what you boast of, I count but dung that I might win Christ. You've got to come to the place where you count your past life and what you have as dung and flush it. Don't hang on to it. Don't boast about dung in your life. You got what I'm saying? All right, I hope you do. Well, you know, I've got this dung from theological seminary. Well, don't what you're doing with dung in your pocket, dung on your clothes, dung on your wall. Flush it. And let me give you some truths of God's word. I did flush what I had. And some were so, so obnoxious, it couldn't flush. I had to use a plunger to get it out. And some people need spiritual plungers in their lives to flush what they've got off because it's not going down 
easily into the spiritual sewage system of the world. May God help us. May God help us. I can be that spiritual plunger that helped you to flush it down. And God would help you to fill it spiritually, uh, be a, to, to help you get rid of your garbage that you boast about. You want God to use you? Stop boasting in, boasting in things that are not beneficial. Stop boasting about your grandparents and your so-and-so and whatever you've got. There's nothing in man to boast about. Amen. And so Paul, uh, John is writing here and he got five minutes left. So let me see how fast I can put this. He says here, listen to Jesus talking. Him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of... He calls the Father his God. But maybe he made a mistake. He was as old as the Father. He's forever. No, no, no. He is the Son of God. He can't be as old as his dad. The Son is begotten. The Father is the begetter. Are you following me? He says, And he that he shall go no more out, you would, when you believe in the Lord and you overcome, you will back, not backslide. And I will write upon him my, uh, name, my, the name of my God. Jesus said, if you didn't get it the first time, I'm going to repeat it. I'll write on you and give you the nature or the name or the nature of my God and the name of the city of my God. Now bear in mind city because if the pillar is not literal, the city is not literal either. All right. When I was young, Brother Terry and I, we sang a song. Get a guitar and you go along. There's a holy and beautiful city whose ruler, maker and ruler is God. John saw it descending from heaven when Patmos in exile he trod. You like my guitar playing? Its high massive walls were of jasper. The city itself is pure gold. And when my time here on earth is ended, mine eyes shall its glory behold in that bright city, pearly white city. And while I'm singing like this, out there in religion, the saints are all, you know, God, yes. I was leading so many people in the ditch and they did not even know they loved ditch, ditches. There's no real city. That's going to come down from heaven. And one of these days I'll show you that there's no real city coming down from heaven. A city will be built in Jerusalem. With labor and hands. But that city coming down from Jerusalem, from God out of heaven in Revelation 21. Is the bride of Christ. And when you see the word bride of Christ. We come back again to the word bride. And so we'll play in that word bride. And the bride of Christ is not the wife of Jesus. It's symbolism. He's preparing a bride. And few places in the Bible you'll find the word bride used to describe what Christ is coming back for. 
There are things that we have adopted for years. You will never find not a single place in the book of Revelation the word Antichrist. Yet, every preacher uses the book of Revelation to promote the concept of Antichrist. Guess what? You don't need the book of Revelation. Antichrist, the spirit of Antichrist, existed in the days when they rejected Christ and exists unto this day. There are symbolisms in the Bible that we need men of God, touched of God, to interpret that. You don't need a college education. That is important for your secular job, for your calling in the ministry. You need the anointing and the Holy Ghost touching your life. And so I'll finish this and we'll pray. It says here in verse 12, Him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God. And he shall go no more out. And I'll write upon him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, uh, which is New Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heaven from my God. And I'll write on him my new name. Can you give me two minutes more? All right, let's turn to Revelation 21 quickly. And I'm quitting. In Revelation 21, uh, John saw this. He says, and the new heaven, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. I remember we're dealing with the book of symbols. And the new heaven and the new earth. For the first earth was passed away and there was no more sea. The word sea there means ungodly inhabitants that occupied the earth. And next time when we get to this, we'll talk about that. Uh, The new heaven and new earth doesn't mean the old one. We just wrap it up, pull it away and get a brand new one. Like you get a brand new car. No. Uh, We'll understand what that means. And John saw a holy city in New Jerusalem. This is what verse... Uh, the verse we are reading in chapter, uh, chapter 3 of Revelation was talking about. Coming down from God. From God is coming down from God out of heaven. Uh, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And here in verse, um, in verse um, uh, 9. And there came one of the, angels, the seven angels which had the seven vials full of the seven last plagues. And talked with me saying come hither. And I will show you the bride, the lamb's wife. Oh, you see, he's got a wife. No, no, no. Read on. Let's read. He's going to show you the bride, the lamb's wife. And what did he show me? And he carried me in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the great city, the new Jerusalem, descending from heaven as a bride adorned for her husband. So what's coming down from heaven is not the literal city, it's the bride. Okay, and in this city is a temple. And this temple is an amazing temple because in verse 22, and I'm closing with that because of limited time. And I saw no temple therein. Why? There's supposed to be a temple. Why isn't there a temple in this city? It says, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it. See, Revelation is a book of symbols. And when the bride comes down, the bride is made up of 144,000 overcomers who has the Father's name and nature written in their forehead. They have New Jerusalem. They're part of New Jerusalem. That is the bride of Christ. They're overcomers. They have the Father's name and they shall be given a, a new nature. And God himself, Jesus said, me and my Father will come and we'll make our abode in you. The Spirit of God will be the very life existing factor in 144,000 overcomers. They wouldn't have human life. They'd have the very life of God. 
And so in that bride, in the 144,000 overcomers, there'd be a life existing that will be the Father and the Son. They don't need a literal temple. Uh, there'll be a literal temple in Jerusalem, literal Jerusalem. But the spiritual Jerusalem coming down is Christ coming back uh, to rule and reign on this earth. And God shall dwell with them, even though God is this new Jerusalem is coming down from God out of heaven. I love this book. It's intriguing. It's wonderful. And to be in the Bride of Christ is another story. And that is where we'll have a long little talk about what it takes to be in the Bride of Christ. Not everyone coming to church will be in the Bride of Christ. Heaven is not a joke. Our preachers make it a joke. But Jesus is coming back and he told his disciples, he says, when you pray, pray our Father which art in heaven. Uh, thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Blessed are the pure in heart for they shall inherit the earth. This earth will be transformed into the very glorious paradise of God. And Christ will sit on the throne of his father David and rule from Jerusalem with 144,000 overcomers. Amen. You're blessed if you become an overcomer. You don't become an overcomer by serving God at your spare time and at your leisure. We have to be able to follow the Lamb whithersoever he goeth. May God help us to comprehend these things. Let us pray. Father, again we thank you for another good night in your house. We thank you for this uh, period of time where we can study your word, Father. And you can give us understanding. Because the preacher was wise, he taught the people knowledge. Father, give me wisdom that I might teach this people knowledge. Knowledge that might contradict the, the theology of the world, Father. But it might support the truth that you plant in my heart and in the hearts of every child of God over the centuries, O oh, Father, that the church is in existence. Bless our service tonight. Again, we ask you'll touch lives, touch the saints that are not well. Uh, bring them, O oh God, back to the work of God, we pray. Touch every child of God, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. <clears throat> Praise the wonderful name of the Lord. Amen. Nice talking to you.